Lord, we need something bigger than us. We're sent all kinds of messages that there are things bigger than you. We often believe those messages. Sometimes we think there's nothing bigger than us. But we need something bigger than us. That's you. And so what a powerful name the name of Jesus is. Lord, today I I pray that you would fill us uh, by the power of your spirit with the understanding of how good you are. We need good news in a world full of bad news and challenging news and difficult news and hurtful news. We need good news. And so we're asking by the power of your spirit that you'd bring the good news home to our hearts today. So may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and all of God's people said, amen. I want to invite you to remain standing with me, if you would, and read the scriptures together. We've been wrapping up, we're wrapping up a series today on the 23rd Psalm, and the last three weeks, Aaron and uh, LP and Dave brought the message, and they did a great job. Uh, I was on vacation last week, that last couple weeks, and and they did a great job. Can we just say thank you to them? I just appreciate them and what they've done. And as we as we wrap this series together, I would like you. Would you uh, even if you're watching online, I invite you to stand. We stand together out of respect for God's word. We're going to put Psalm 23 here on the screen, and I would invite you to say this entire psalm out loud with me. Are you ready? Here we go. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And we're going to look at this this week. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you for standing out of reverence for God's word. As you're seated, would you turn to your neighbor and say, I'm being chased by mercy. I want to talk to you today for a few minutes about you living with a different sense about yourself. I'm not talking about your senses. I'm not talking about smell, sight, touch, taste, hearing. I'm not talking about whether in the current moment things taste good to you or smell bad or feel smooth. I'm not talking about your senses. I'm not talking about this present moment for you. I I, want to talk to you about your sense about how things are for you. Your sense about how you feel like your life is going. If I could, hopefully by the end of our time here together, I hope that you could have the sense that the psalmist gives to us here in Psalm 23, verse 6, that you are chased by mercy. Chased by mercy. Now, would you say 
uh, this is how life feels for you right now. I mean, do you sit around and you say, you know, yeah, here I am, you know, Scott, on the other side of the pandemic, and man, I just have this sense that mercy is chasing me down. I mean, just every moment. And you're talking to somebody about it, and they go, mm, me too. Pass me some mercy. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I think most of us, even in this moment, I know it feels like we're, you know, in the waning days of the pandemic, hopefully. I think most of us are not talking about mercy. Our, our, our sense is more like, help! <laughs> and it kind of seems almost ludicrous to suggest, almost, uh, like it flies in the face of logic, to say that you could live in this present moment with a sense that you are chased by mercy. Now, I want to invite you today to take what might be the most important journey of your life. Now, some of you have made this journey. Some of you have never made this journey. Some of you wish you could make this journey, but you've just never known how. I just want you to take the most important journey of your life this morning. Now, you know as well as I do that some journeys are just more important than others. They have more weight, they have more meaning, they have more freight to them. We just got back from several weeks of vacation and the, the, the ticker on our van, the, the trip ticker, I don't know if you have one of those on your car, goes to a thousand and then it repeats and it repeated twice. And, and we drove, you know, all the way to South Carolina and then down through the Southeast states and 12 states, 2,700 miles. I mean, it was great. We relaxed and it was wonderful. But honestly, in the grand scheme of things, that was not one of the more important journeys that I've undertaken in my life. I have taken some important journeys, though. There, there are in, um, in Makwasa, Malawi, in the Malamulo Hospital uh, in Makwasa, Malawi, which is a set of buildings that were built in the bush of, of Malawi, um, are a set of buildings. One building is where uh, women give birth, and another is the nursery. And, and if you're born in this section, what they do is they put you into a bassinet, cover it with a mosquito net, and they immediately wheel you outside into the other building. And that was my first journey, was in the Malamulo Hospital in Makwasa, Malawi, where I was born. I was put in a bassinet and, and wheeled out into this other building. And that was an important journey because I'm here today. <laughs> you have that, right? You have that journey that you took. I remember vividly when I was just a, a little guy, probably four or five years old, we got on somewhere in Africa uh, and flying back to the States. We, we got onto a 747. I, I still remember going in and, and seeing the spiral staircase to the upper deck and, and wondering, wow, this is amazing, and sitting um, at the window as we flew across the Atlantic Ocean and looking out and, and understanding that there was this huge ocean beneath us. And then we flew to London, England on the way, and, and we, we uh, did a little tourist thing in London, England, and we went to Buckingham Palace for the, the changing of the guard, and I sat there on my, I vividly remember this, sat there on my dad's shoulder waiting for the changing of the guard. It's the ceremony that they go through. And, and then we just sat there and sat there and sat there. And then finally someone came out and said, uh, you know, there will be no, or they more, maybe they said, there will be no changing of the guard today. And I, I like to imagine that's how it sounded. And, and, and I, was, I just remember as a five-year-old just being so disappointed that that didn't happen. And, and the reason that was an important journey for me is I remember vividly from the time I was this little kid that the world was this big place. I remember when I was a senior in high school, I went to senior high camps, why I believe in youth camp and why you need to send your kids to youth camp and kids camp. I think it's a big deal. It's important in your life. 
and I, I went to senior high youth camp, and we were living in Dallas, Texas, and, and I went back to where we'd been living on the Joplin District. Of Those of you who are a part of the, the Church of the Nazarene, you know the Joplin District is over by Joplin, Missouri, and I went to summer camp, and, and um, I, I was uh, all ready to go to college. I was going to go to Southern Nazarene University, which is in Bethany, Oklahoma. It's where my parents went, and and uh, I'd grown up in the, the, this college in Olathe, Kansas, called Mid-American Nazarene College, and I'd kind of wanted to go there, but I was, you know, I lived there now, and I had a roommate, and had class schedule, and I took this trip, this important journey from my home in Dallas, Texas, to this camp in Joplin, Missouri, and I, I don't remember what happened. I don't remember if it was during one of the chapel services. I don't, I don't really know, but I, I just got the sense I'm not supposed to go to Southern Nazarene University. I'm supposed to go to Mid-American Nazarene College, and so I talked to the representative that was there at the camp, and I said, you know, I, I'm supposed to go to Mid-American, and so I did a month later, and I, there I met my wife, and I got my calling to be a pastor. I mean, it was an important journey. I remember a journey we took uh, our family in September of 2019, coming up on almost two years ago. We got on a plane near Chicago, and we flew to this little Midwestern city, maybe you've heard of it, um, on the plains called Wichita, Kansas, and we met these wonderful people at this church there and and, uh, had some conversations, and and, uh, that resulted in me standing here today as your pastor. It's an important journey. And, and often when we take those kinds of important journeys in life, we, we don't know what's to come, but the trip changes you. And so I want to invite you to take the most important journey of your life. And now listen, the most important journey of your life is 18 inches long. Some of you are going, what, what are you talking about? 18 inches long. It's the journey from your head to your heart. It's it's the truths about God's goodness and mercy moving from being ideas or concepts or words on a page to being truths that descend into your heart and into your life experience and they become a part of you and how you see and how you understand the world and you develop a different sense about your life and what's possible in your life. And and I, I want you to have that today. I want you to walk away with the sense that you're chased by God's mercy. Now, there are, there are some threats to that. There are some threats. There are some outside threats. There are some inside threats. I'll, I'll give you a couple of them. One of the outside threats is, uh, is what many people call that um, we are living in the, the age of unbelief. The age of unbelief. Now, if you're here, if you're um, in the room, if you're watching online, uh, the, the likelihood is that you are saying, well, I, you know, maybe I, I do struggle with belief and I, 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 maybe I, I, I come from a world of unbelief, but I want to believe. And, and you're here because you want to be a person of faith or, or want to be a person of belief. And so I just want to show you, just give you a, a thumbnail sketch from one of my favorite passages of scripture in all of the Bible about what it means to be a person of belief. There's just some characteristics of it. And, and those, those characteristics in the age of unbelief have been, in essence, wiped away. This is Psalm 73, 23. If you go into my office, I've got it. I printed it out and, and put it there because it's one of my, one of my favorite passages of scriptures that the, the psalmist is talking about the difficulties of his life and, and how he was ignorant. And then he says this beautiful phrase in Psalm 73, 23. He says, yet I'm always with you in the middle of my difficulty. If you pick it up where he's writing there, you hold me by my right hand. So it's this image of a child being held by their father. 
you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. You hold me by my right hand. There's agape love, the, the Greek word for selfless, self-giving love that God has. Agape love exists. There's something higher than me doing well. There's something bigger than me. You, you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. There's a God who guides you, and, and afterward, you will take me into glory. In other words, this isn't it. So those are kind of the defining characteristics of belief. And for most of human history, almost every human being in some way, shape, form, or fashion has held that. They're, I mean, maybe they don't say it the way we say it as Christians, but they've kind of taken that, you know, there is. There's a God above me. That, that God might guide me. And, and you know what? This, is, this life that I'm experiencing, this is not everything. And, and that has formed kind of a covering for humanity. It's like the tent of humanity with the top on it. And, and there's a very long history to this, but um, it's just not the case anymore. We live in an age of unbelief, not an age of belief. In 1500, almost everybody believed what I just described to you. In 2020, even if you're a person of faith, you, you recognize those three things and you go, I, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I want them to be true. Charles Taylor, the philosopher, he, philosopher, he calls it uh, the secular age, the secular age. Now, secular, that word is, um, it comes from a Latin word that means sacar, which means to cut. And so I've got to, I've got to, I'm going to try not to slice my hand open here with a knife. Bear with me here, just a second. And, and so these beliefs have functioned kind of like a covering for humanity. And, and, and what's happened in the secular age is that we've ripped the tent open. And the, the tent of humanity is open. And, and we think now that there is nothing above us and, and we're open to the elements. Now, in our culture today, the assumption is that that's good. You know, we've kind of sloughed off belief in God, and, and that represents progress, and it's kind of inevitable. But the, the, the reality, the lived reality of that is that the rains are pouring in, and we're all why there's no cover. And so with this outside threat, that makes the sense that you and I are chased by mercy. It can make it hard to believe. It's an outside threat. There's an inside threat that goes along with that, and the inside threat is that the, the data of our life seems to confirm the heart of our age. And, and honestly, you just live a little bit, and you discover maybe it's not goodness that's operating in the world. It's hardness or it's evil. And, and maybe it's not mercy that's operating in the world, but it's a stranglehold, and it's a fight for survival. And with this inner threat that goes along with the outer threat, it makes the sense that you and I are chased by mercy, just makes it hard to reach. Is it really there? Can I grasp it? Another outside threat is just technology. Um, maybe you've seen these pictures before. There's a, I've seen it several times. Uh, there's a picture of you know, our, our cell phone and then a picture of all of the devices that our cell phone has replaced. You know, a calculator, a phone, an alarm clock, uh, just a camera, a video camera. And it's just like you, know, you see all the items you know, that we used to spend time going to and now they're all in this device. And, and maybe that's why it adds up that we spend so much time on our phones 
but, you know, we were at the beach, and I remember we were sitting on the beach, and I, I like to take pictures, and so I did have my phone, uh, and, and, but I, I look over, and it's like the sun is setting, and there's a dude over here, and he's like, and I wanted to be like, bro, how much money did you pay to be here? <laughs> you can do that at home. <laughs> And, and so we're, we're on our screens all of the time, and, and, and there, there's no longer any long-form thinking about the deep problems of the world. There's, there's not much of that going on, because there's no space for contemplation, and there's no space for quiet. Now, I'm not saying I got this nailed. I, I, I certainly don't. I was sitting the other day. I went to Starbucks. Uh, I went to work out. We live in Andover, and, and um, in Andover, there's, there's only one Starbucks, and it's inside the Dillons. So please feel with me how difficult my life is. When I want Starbucks, I have to drive into the parking lot and get out of my car and go into the Starbucks. Oh, it's so hard. Please pray for me. And, and, and so I, I go in, and so I've worked out, and I'm going to get some protein, and I, I, I didn't have my phone because I forgot it. And, and they had some chairs, and so I thought, you know, I'm just going to sit down here. I'm just going to plop down here. And so I sat down with my my drink right here, and, and I had these chairs, and, and there's the door that comes in, and there's the flower section, and then there's all the produce, and so I'm just watching people walk in, and I'm just drinking, you know, and then it struck me how odd it is to see somebody sitting like that, and there probably were people leaving the grocery store saying to each other, did you see that creep who was just sitting by the door staring at people? But we're, we're, on our, we're literally on our devices looking at them so much, this outside threat, that it quite literally makes the sense that you and I are chased by mercy hard to see. And then going along with that, the, the inside threat is, is this sense of anxiety that we have as a culture. And, and if you're on social media, you know that what you're doing is you're watching someone's highlight reel and you are comparing it to your everyday reel, and you're getting this sense over and over again as people post on social media that you can't keep up. And, and one measure of anxiety is the gap that we feel between who we are and what we're supposed to be, and we have this fear that we'll never get there. And it's an, it's an inside thread, and it makes the sense that you and I are, in the words of the psalmist, chased by mercy. It makes it Hard to feel. So if we're going to overcome these, uh, these outside threats and these inside threats, then we need to go where the psalmist goes to help us understand and live with the sense that we are chased by mercy. And here's where the psalmist goes that you and I need to go. The psalmist goes to the character of God. Now, the whole psalm is all about what God is like, and especially Verse 6, you know, surely goodness and love or mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, when I was a kid, that was the, the, Psalm 23 was the very first uh, scripture that I memorized. I remember I was nine years old, Omaha First Church, the Nazarene stage, just high up like this, seats just like this. And I remember we had to all get up on, on a Sunday night. Remember Sunday night church? And we got, I got up on Sunday night, and I had to quote it in the King James Version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall. You know, I was doing that whole thing. And, and I read that Shirley, and I was like, who is Shirley? I don't know who Shirley, 
Who is she? I don't know who Shirley is. Well, it's just a word that, that emphasizes it. It, it. It's emphatic. It emphasizes that. It's not even an actual word in the Hebrew. It's, a, it's an emphasis that emphasizes that it's the goodness and mercy that's, that's chasing after us. And so the psalmist is trying to say to us, in my life, God repeatedly gives me goodness and mercy over and over and over again. And he's emphasizing the character of God because only someone with character always does the same things toward you. When you're around a person of character, how do you know? Well, I think one of the ways that you know is that they always, or at least very consistently, respond the same way to you. And you can test a person's character, you can test your own character uh, in two ways. Uh, One, uh, that person's uh, relation to people who have a different station in life than they do. And then that person, how they respond to people they perceive to be lower down than them. What do I mean? Well, your station refers to, you know, how much money you have or the position you have or the authority that you have. When I was uh, all the way through elementary school, I had a, a mortal enemy. Um, his name was Tony. And um, on the playground, we were just enemies. We were in class together several times, the same teacher. And, and he just didn't like me. And I, I, I'm sure I was just the perfect angel child and I did nothing wrong to him. But he just didn't like me. And, and uh, we would be out on, on uh, the playground at recess playing Foursquare. And I'm not going to lie, I was really good at Foursquare. I might have gone pro. but So I, I, I remember one vividly one day, um, he did something to me. He said something to me, looked at me, the, the expression that he had, the tone he used, the words he said. And, and I, right out of, just a second after he said it, the, the teacher walked over and I watched his entire countenance change, his words change, his facial expressions change. And he's like, oh, hey. And I knew as a little third grader, I'm like, that's so two-faced. This is not a person of character. I mean, the, the writer of Proverbs says he's been a child is known by their actions. And a person of character, what they do is they treat you the same regardless. See, if you're around somebody and um, you want to know, you want to date somebody or you want to marry somebody, find out how they treat people that they think are less than them. Then you'll know. Because if they're around somebody that has money or position or authority and they treat them differently, guess what? They're willing to use people to get what they want. That's, that's how you know someone of character. And then a person of character, they always respond the same to you no matter how you respond to them. They always they always treat you the same. They've pre-decided how it is that they are going to respond to you. They already know. They've already made the decision. I think character is incredibly important in leadership. Uh, so I'm always trying to work on my character. And I always want to be a, a deeper person and a bigger person. And, and so I have this list of, I call my my core ministry commitments. I've written them down in this little notebook I go through every Monday. And I read, again, my core ministry commitments that I've written down. That are, These are things that are important to me. And, and um, I, it's a way for me to work on my character and say, God, I want you to help shape my character. And and, and so I, I read this every week. I'm not telling you that I always live up to this, but this is what I, I want to be. I call it taking the high road. We've got a picture of, I took a, snapped a picture of my uh, notebook here um, behind me. Here's, here's, what I, here's how I say it. Here's how I wrote it. Uh, treat people with grace. If, treat, if treating people right is dependent on people treating me right, I'm ruled by emotions, not principles. I don't let people's behavior affect my principle. 
It is God's nature to be graceful. Our nature doesn't affect His. Do the same. Be Christ-like in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what holy people do. Now, here's our struggle. Often, our experience of religion makes us believe the character of God changes based on how we behave or perform. Let me say that to you again. Often, very often, our experience of religion makes us believe the character of God changes based on how we behave or perform. So, if you're the kind of person who you say, you know, I like every day I want to read my Bible, and you know, every week I want to go to church, and I want to serve somebody, and, and you have a great week, right? You're like, man, you get up in the morning, and you just read scripture, and it just speaks to you so much, and then you go to church, and it's like, oh, my favorite song, and, and you, when, you're in, when you're doing that, you're, you're, you're like, oh, he loves me, oh, he loves me. And if you don't know that song, you're like, the love of God, so rich and pure. I mean, you're just singing it, right? Because you are absolutely feeling it. You are, you are crushing it in the spirit, right? But if you're not, or you sin, or you struggle, then you go, I think God hates me. He hates me. Oh, he hates me. He's so disappointed in me. And what we do is we project our fickleness onto God. Now, here's what the psalmist is trying to teach us. God is a good person with a good heart. That doesn't even do it justice. God is the best person with the best heart. He's a great person with a a great heart. I want you to think about a situation you're in or you've been through, and it's challenging and you don't quite know what to do, you don't know, quite know how to respond, you don't quite know what to say. And then I want you to think about the best person that you know with the richest character that you know. And I want you to think about what they would say and how they would respond and what they would do. And the reason you know what they would say or how they would respond or what they would do is because you know their character. And the psalmist is saying, if you know that about a person who has good character, how much more are we meant to know that about God? And Psalm 23 is about what God is like, how God treats us regardless of our station, how God treats us regardless of how we treat God. I'll give you, I'll give you two examples from two of my heroes. One's the Apostle Paul. He was writing to Timothy, who is, was one of his mentees. He was developing and discipling this young guy, and he gave him significant responsibility. He wrote him letters. We have two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in the New Testament, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And, and this is, Paul's trying to impress this on Timothy. Like you need to know that God is trustworthy and is always the same. And so he says this in 2 Timothy verse 2, chapter 12. He says, Timothy, Scott, Dave, Sean, If we are faithless, now I wonder how you would, if you weren't the Apostle Paul, I wonder how you would fill that in. This is what he says. He remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. The character of God is not dependent on how you act. And that's powerful. Then one of my other heroes, John Wesley, 
Uh, John, we were in Savannah, Georgia during our trip, and uh, this is a picture I took. This is John Wesley was a clergyman in the Church of England, most famous man of his day, came early in his ministry to Savannah, Georgia as a missionary, started a church still there in Savannah, Georgia. This is a statue that's there in Savannah, Georgia. I took that picture, and, and this, is, this is a quote from him. Listen to what he says. This is so good. God, though you cannot see him, is above the sky and is a deal brighter than the sun. It is he who makes the grass green and the flowers grow that makes the trees green and the fruits come upon them. Think what he can do. He can do whatever he pleases. He can strike me or you dead in a moment. But he loves you. He loves to do you good. He loves to make you happy. Should you not then love him? You love me because I love you and do you good. But it is God that loves, that makes me love you. Therefore, you should love him. Oh. So the psalmist is saying, listen, if you, if you understand the character of God, then what will happen is you'll let what's true about God define your experience instead of always letting your experience define what you think is true. Now, I, I want to I zero in on what this means, and I, I want to do that through the, the character words there in verse 6 of Psalm 23. And I want to use a tool, and, and you might have heard of this tool before, uh, this is a tool from the Jewish rabbis, uh, and, and it's, the, the, it's called the, the principle of first mention. Here's what the principle of first mention is. The principle of first mention means that when you come across a, a word or a concept in what we would have as the Old Testament, uh, when, you, when you come across that word, and then what you need to do to help you understand it, if you're wrestling with understanding it, is go back to the very first mention of that word in the text of Scripture and use that, that context as a lens for helping you understand something that you're struggling to understand in another part of the Scriptures. It's called the, the principle of first mention, and so it provides a commentary on the meaning of that concept. So there's a couple of character words here. You know, surely your goodness and love, we're going to look at these two words, will follow me all the days of your life. Now, the word that you just need to know this, the, the word follow there is a, from the military background that means that you would pursue or chase something. That's why I said you're, you're being chased. You're being pursued by God's goodness and by God's mercy. And so here's the first character word, and, and the first character word there in, in Psalm 23, 6 is, is goodness. Now, that comes from the Hebrew word uh, tov, can you just say that with me? We have it on the screen. Tov. Sometimes you'll see it spelled T-O-B, tov. Uh, just a way of trying to hear the assonance of the, of the word in Hebrew. And, and where, where's the first place that you think that might have been mentioned? Well, if you know, it would be Genesis chapter 1. There you go to the very first book of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis, and the very first chapter, which is the account of creation, and you would go to one of the very first verses, and it's the first act of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, and there I'll read it, put it for you on the screen. God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the first act of creation. God saw that the light was tov, was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, this is the, again, we're using the principle of first Mention now. What what are we supposed to take from this? And I want to I want to give you my take. Now I'm I am not a Jewish rabbi. I'm a Christian pastor. Hi, uh, but I want to give you three things 
to note, and then I'm going to give you a practical example. Stay with me, because I promise it's going to feel like we're up here somewhere in the clouds, and, but we're going to land on ground, okay? So stick with me. Three things to note about Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, the principle of first mention. Number one is this, this is that light is forever linked with the goodness of God. In fact, the goodness of God is experienced by you and I as the experience of light, illumination. Second thing is this. When there's darkness, the first thing God always does, as revealed to us by the pattern of creation, is bring light to the darkness. That's what God always does. So light illuminates what's dark. In other words, it's the light that shows me where the darkness is. Listen, you and I wouldn't even know darkness was a thing if we didn't know that light was a thing. It's the light that helps me understand that there is a thing called darkness. Tracking with me so far? Okay. Third thing. How God uses that light, or the, we could call it the fruit of that light, is to do his creative work. So, again, we're in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. In day one, it's darkness. God creates light. Then God takes that light as a tool and uses it on day 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and then rests on day 7. So we finally see what the light is revealing, or we see the purpose of the light later. Tracking with me so far? Okay, I know, where you're like, well, what do you say? What do you say? Okay, let's, let's put that together. Let's try to put our feet on the ground here for a second. You come up against a dark place in your life. You get a medical diagnosis that you didn't want. Your spouse says, I'm leaving. Your child says, I don't want to talk to you anymore. You are handed a pink slip. It's a dark place. And you don't see how that mess will be anything. I mean, that's, that's why we call it dark is because we can't see. <laughs> in fact, that's what the dark places in life are. They are experiences of not being able to see what's going on around me. That's what it means to be in darkness. I, I'm like, I don't know. And in moments like that, we say things like, God, what is happening? Or God, why is this happening? Now, okay. The psalmist, okay? For principle of first mention, Genesis chapter 1, where there's darkness, what does God do? God always brings light. And then God uses that light to do his creative work. So on day one, God brings light to your dark situation. And you are all of a sudden aware that it is a dark situation. You are now aware that what you are going through is awful. Now, I know it doesn't feel this way, but that is actually an experience. It's your first experience of light because before there was light, we didn't even know there was a thing called darkness. We didn't even have words for it. If all we ever had was darkness, we'd, never, we'd just go, this is what it is. So just becoming aware that something in your life is dark means that you are being given light. Track with me, okay? Now, if that is all God does, that's incredibly cruel. It's like a foreman who's trying to get you fired. You did that wrong. You see that? That was terrible. But what do we learn from the principle of first mention? Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. God 
uses that light to do his creative work, but you and I often don't discover the full purpose of that till later, right? We're just in day, in, in, in our metaphor here, we're in day one, and we don't find out till maybe day four about why in the world that happened in the first place, or what could poss- what good could possibly come out of that situation. And the psalmist says, listen, this is what is going to chase you all of your life. God is always going to bring light to your darkness. He's going to expose it to you, and you're going to go, it's dark, and then God's going to go, but yeah, just wait till you see what I do with this. You're not even going to believe it. Now, I want to give you a mental image because uh, this, again, you're probably like, okay, well, I, I kind of am getting what you're saying, I think, but not far from our house, we're building a new neighborhood, and I was driving by there the other day, and I saw these guys uh, working. I, I, I'm not quite sure what they're building there. I think it's going to be a sign or a retaining wall, and I just sna- I stopped my car and tried to do a slow drive-by, you know, so I didn't look like a creep. And, and I'm not really sure what it is that they are building. I can bet you that on that job site, some people have gotten uh, scraped up. It's, it's likely that on job si- that job site or job sites like it, someone has had a puncture wound from the materials. I, I'm sure on that job site, people have been sunburned. I'm sure on that job site, you know, brick has fallen on somebody and broken a shoulder blade. I'm, I, I mean, I'm sure all kinds of things have happened on that site. It's a mess. But it's a necessary mess to create something beautiful. I don't, I, I, again, I took this just the other day. I don't have the after picture for you, okay? So you have to hold on on that. But this is you and me in our dark moment. We're, we're like, okay, something happened and I got, I got crushed here. But I think you, God, I think you can bring something good out of this. And that's what the psalmist says. That's what God's like. God will bring something good out of it. God will do something with it that you can't see right now. You're just in the middle of the construction zone. Now, I'll give you one other verse if you're still like, well, you've been around this stuff for a while. You've heard this verse before, and it kind of gets thrown on like a cliche. But I'm, I'm, I'm just about 100% convinced this is what Paul's trying to say when he gives us Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the, what is the word there? Good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God, in a way you and I can't understand, puts it all together. And God will chase you, the psalmist says, with his goodness all of your life. But that's not, that's not the only character word. Then he says, surely your goodness and your, your love, or the King James translates that, your mercy. Well, that's, I've told you about this word before. This is the word chesed. Chesed. Can you just make a sound and just chesed? Chesed. It's often translated loving kindness or mercy or grace. Now, the, the first mention of this is incredibly confusing. You would find it in Genesis chapter 20, and it's the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham have been called by God to leave their family and go to the land that God will give them, which becomes Israel and, and the people of Israel. And, 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 and along the way, um, Abraham adopts some strategies to make it through the territories that he's going in. You've got to understand a few things that are happening in this, in this text. Abraham's married to Sarah. Sarah is quasi-Abraham's sister by marriage, and it's just, just a weird story. You can read the background of it. And so she technically is a, a form of his sister, you know, like half-sister-ish. And that was a common thing. And you also need to understand, when you're reading the Bible, and you read something that's repugnant to you culturally, you need to understand the Bible's not necessarily 
proscribing it. It's just describing what's happening. It's not necessarily saying it's good or bad. It's just saying it happened. So this was, this was their culture. That was the, how people operated. And, and, and you didn't have nations like you have today. You had you know, tribes and little cities, and they all protected themselves and raided each other. And, and so you had to be very careful when you made a long journey. And they were making a long journey. And so one of Abraham's strategies when, uh, when the raiding party would come is he would say, um, hey, uh, this woman here, yeah, oh, she's my sister. And they would take, like raiding parties would do, the women and marry them and do whatever they wanted with them and take the cattle. And, and in Genesis chapter 20, uh, this, this happens. This, this king, Abimelech is the title for a king, takes Sarah and is awoken one night uh, after a dream where God says to him, that's that man Abraham, that guy you met, that's his wife. What are you doing? So he goes, the king, Abimelech, goes to Abraham. What are you doing? It's like, yeah, it is my sister. And then here it is in Genesis chapter 20, verse 13. And this is the, the words of Abraham speaking here. He says, and so God made me, he's trying to explain. God made me wander from my father's household. And so I said to her, I said to Sarah, this is how you can show your hesed or your love or your mercy or your kindness to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. I mean, it's half true. Now, listen, I get it. I read this, and I'm like, what? I mean, we read, read this today, and we're like, hashtag me too. I mean, the, the woman is mistreated and used and unfairly treated. How in the world can this be any kind of an example? I mean, I, what, what in the world? And, and here's my take. I'm not, I'm not telling you I'm right. I'm, I'm taking a stab at this. And I, I, I just think there are some circumstances in life that are so incredibly messy you can't make sense of the beginning from the end. Uh, it's so messed up that you don't know which way is up, and, and people are being used, and people are using people, and it's just an absolute nightmare. And, and, but buried, and, and here in this story, buried in the middle of that mess is a sacrificial act of hesed, mercy, that in the moment there feels profane and wrong. It would be like Jesus, who's the innocent, who's killed on a cross at the hands of unjust people. It, it's, it's like this act of goodness and mercy that's profane because of how it came about, right? The story's kind of like some of the parables that Jesus tells. If you know the parable of the workers in the field, Jesus tells this parable to illustrate God's grace and mercy. And he says, okay, there's this guy and he hired all these workers and he hired this guy first in the morning. And then he went and he hired some guys mid-morning. And then he hired some guys in the mid-afternoon. And then he hired some guys about an hour before work was done. And then, then he paid them all. And then he, he paid, everybody's watching, everybody get paid. And he gives the guy who worked an hour this sum. And so the next guy goes, oh man, I'm going to get even more. But he gives every single person the exact same pay. And everyone says, that's unfair. And Jesus says, well, you know what? Grace is unfair. Or it's the parable of the, 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 the unjust steward. Do you know this story? You've ever read this story of Jesus um, where Jesus tells this story about this man who's going to be fired and here's, here's he's going to be fired. And so he, he goes and he makes deals with some of his boss's uh, vendors and he's like, okay, yeah, I know you owe this much. You cut that in half. And I tell you what, you cut that, you cut that here. And, and because he knows he's going to be fired, and he's like, well, when I get fired, these guys will hire me. And Jesus, apparently in the parable, commends the guy. You know, it's like, what? How do we, how do we make sense of that? How, how do we, how do we, what? 
Now we've got to apply this. This is, again, this is not, a, this is not about you. This is, this is not condoning abuse or abusive situations because someone could hear this story and hear what I just said. And you could be a woman and you could be in an abusive relationship with a man and you could go, oh, well, he beats me, but I need to stay with him. No, no, no. This is not a story about your mercy. This is about God's mercy. Here, here's, here's the take. Here's, here's what I think we take away from the principle of first mention. In the messes you get yourself in, often the only thing that will get you out is the grace and mercy of God. That's it. And the psalmist says, listen, you need to understand the character about who we're talking about here. This is someone who without fail will chase you with goodness. This is someone who without fail, this is the character of the God we're talking about, this is someone who without fail will chase you with mercy. You won't stop him. It's not dependent on you because his character is that he will always do this way. He will, he will chase you. This is, this is the character of God on display. Jesus in John chapter 10 describes himself he says, in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I, I, I think this is clearly, Jesus is reaching to Psalm 23. It's like everyone knows Psalm 23. You know that, you know that Psalm about the shepherd? What he's like? That's me. And so we're going to take these elements of communion. I don't, I'd invite you to have them ready. Take the top off here if you're here in the room. Have the bread ready. Pull the cup back. We call this uh, the, Lord's, the Lord's table. It's one of the words we use to describe communion. When you invited someone to dinner in the ancient world, what you were saying, and we, we kind of mean this, but maybe not in the same way. What you were saying was, I would like to be in a relationship with you. And so if the good shepherd invites you to his table, what he's saying is, I want to be in relationship with you. I I want to care for you. I want to guide you. I want to transform you. And I know how to do it. Jesus is the path. I don't know if you know that Jesus is the path for the 18-inch journey. You follow Jesus, you get that journey thrown in for free. So when we receive these elements, we're remembering again that that's the promise, that the character of the God who's inviting us into a relationship being reminded again, the good shepherd. There in John 10, Jesus also says, and I've heard this all my life, uh, I came that you might have life, he's referring to himself as the good shepherd, and that you might have it to the full or more abundantly. And I never made this connection until this series. If you double click on abundant life, what comes up is everything described in Psalm 23. Oh, a shepherd who leads me 
that still waters and provides me with what I need and looks after me, cares for me when I'm struggling with enemies. He's going to chase me with his goodness and mercy all the days of my life. And, 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 and the best part is this never ends. And so I'm going to dwell in his house forever. That's what we remember when we take these elements. So I'd invite you to take this bread and break it and remember that Christ's body was broken for you. Eat this and be thankful. And I invite you to take this cup, which represents the blood of Jesus that was shed in, in, a, in a profane way on the cross in light of how he was treated. This profane act of mercy was for you. Would you take and drink this and remember that Christ's blood was shed for you and for the forgiveness of your sins and be thankful to you. Would you stand with me? pray for you and then send you with a blessing. Lord, we, we want to take the most important journey of our life. Many of us have heard about these things. We've read about these things. Uh, we, we know cognitively about these things. But the actual reality of your goodness and your mercy that chases us, because that's just who you are. We would like that to be what beats inside of our chest. We'd like to tattoo that on our heart so that we never forget it and we always feel it. So I pray for my friend who's, uh, who's struggled thinking that you're as fickle as they are. That you change based on how we perform. I pray they would see how good you are, that you're the good shepherd. I pray for my friend who just needs a shepherd and they need some guidance in life. They don't have any. They're on their own. And they recognize in this moment that they need a guide for their heart, for their life. If that's you, just in this moment, you just say, hey, Jesus, I would like for you to be my shepherd. I would like for the Lord to be my shepherd. Guide me, please. Forgive me, please. That's the beginning. So God, we we thank you that you are the good shepherd. Help us to receive what you've said to us this morning. Believe it in our hearts. Pray this in your name. All God's people say.